Coming up on this episode of the Warriors Roundtable. And we started having about three or four key casualties. We were exchanging hand grenades with the enemy. Then the Kazovac element got ambushed, so now I've got Kazovac vehicles that are down. Two days later, we're doing a security patrol. You hear a big boom, and your stomach just sinks. When the Marines returned, they got out of a vehicle, and one Marine is holding in one hand a body bag. People have this romantic idea of combat. This is when it became, it wasn't romantic. It wasn't sexy. It was just grueling, laborious work. You know, and there's fire going on and rounds skipping around. And my vehicle has now pulled up beside me. And, is, and I look up and the gunner looks at me and just does this like little nonchalant wave. <laughs> like, hey, sir, what's going on? And as I start to see the bomb, he gets on the radio and goes, oh, I can see the bomb. I'm like, why didn't I think of it? Like, get in an armored vehicle, drive up a little bit, use the elevation of that vehicle. Mm -hmm. be able to spot the bomb. But no, I didn't think about that. My leadership from below, sometimes they were, they were running the fight. Sometimes it was a squad leader, you know, that was dictating what the company was doing based on using their own initiative and bravery. Hey, sometimes you got to follow those guys and exploit their success. The views and opinions in this podcast do not represent the Department of Defense, Department of the Navy, or United States Marine Corps. After their deployment in 2008, some called them the Forgotten Battalion. But the Marines and sailors of the United States Marine Corps' 2nd Battalion, 7th Marine Regiment, reject the way the Forgotten Battalion moniker encourages that narrative of broken veterans. Instead, these warriors simply want to be remembered for the mission they accomplished and for the honor with which they have served their country and their corps. The majority of 2-7 veterans continue to reflect on their experiences while living their lives and pressing forward. These are their personal stories of resilience with insight to healthy coping and living with hope. Welcome to the Warriors Roundtable. Today on the Roundtable, part one of a two-part interview with former company commander for Fox 2-7, Ross Shellhawks. We moved in methodically, clearing row after row of buildings as we continued toward Corell's position. Just before we linked up, two nearby explosions halted our progress. Two of my Marines had simultaneously stepped on IEDs. Lopez lost one of his legs and Clenard lost both. The Kazovac team moved forward to assist with the wounded. Another explosion. The armored vehicle leading the way for the Kazovac vehicle struck an IED en route to the platoon casualty collection area. The injuries weren't too severe. The driver and vehicle commander were both knocked unconscious. The vehicle commander suffered a fracture to his foot and the gunner took shrapnel to his face. The enemy was shrewd about where they placed their IEDs, deploying them at canalizing terrain points, meaning they placed them in areas where if one vehicle was hit, it left no room for another vehicle to maneuver around it. Medevac helicopters were called in. I ordered the rest of my Marines into defensive positions. Once the casualties were safely moved, the attack continued. We resumed clearing buildings. We moved from compound to compound until we came across an area in the middle of the town. Four Marines had bumped across the danger area, meaning they were bounding across the area while their partners were covered. I moved to the edge of the opening and tapped the Marine in front of me on a helmet, a nonverbal gesture letting him know I was ready to cover his movement. 
he did a quick shuffle across the open area. Just as he reached the other side, he disappeared in an explosion in a cloud of dust. He would be the third Marine to lose a leg in just over an hour. That is from a book, 15 Years of War, written by Christine Schellhaus, who offers a unique window into some pretty honest dialogue between herself and her husband deployed in 2008, telling their story. Today, we have the pleasure of talking on the phone with Christine's husband, retired Major Ross Schellhaus, who served with 2-7 during their 2008 deployment. Ross, welcome to Warriors Roundtable. Thanks, Chaps. Good to talk to you. Great to talk to you, too. I would love, and I'm sure everyone else would love to hear a little bit about where you were in 2008, specifically what was your mission, what did you actually do, where in the Helmand province were you located, and what was your role with 2-7? So I was the uh, company commander for Fox 2-7 uh, out of 29 Palms. Uh, our battalion deployed as part of a measure to assist the Afghan security forces, in this case the police, to uh, it kind of give them some breathing space and allow them time to train their you know, new recruits. And at the same time, we would be in the various districts that we were, were sent to, to give them security, on-the-job training, and, and as best we can to shape conditions to allow the Afghan governance to expand um, mm -hmm. to these areas that the Taliban had controlled. So we deployed in late April. No, late March, excuse me, late March of 2008 and went right into Kandahar. Well, I won't say right in. We kind of planes, trains, and automobiles right. from uh, Manas into Kandahar airfield. And then we had to wait for all our equipment to come because the decision to send 2-7, we weren't going as a MAGTAF, uh, Marine Air Ground Task Force, that Marines typically deploy in. You know, you have an air contagion and logistics element and and then the ground um, we were just going as kind of a infantry pure infantry battalion and we had a few enablers for the specific job we were in mm -hmm. some more eod than would normally a battalion would have explosive ordnance disposal uh, we had more law enforcement advisors so retired law enforcement uh, we had one in each company and then we were going to link up with some more um, training teams from DynCorps, uh, police officers, uh, retired okay. police officers. And then we were also, uh, the National Guard had made units of police officer or, you know, guys that were on there as our primary job were police officers, but were also National Guardsmen. And they made units of those to come mm -hmm. over and help train the police as well. And then we, our battalion ran a, essentially a boot camp, an initial training for police officers while platoons and companies spread out to the districts that we wanted to get these police into. And uh, um, it was not the norm for a deployment because we weren't deploying as a, a Marine Air Ground Task Force, which I think in hindsight, uh, we ended up building a MAGTAF um, after we, we realized, um, or it was realized, the, uh, the kind of conditions and, and the fight that we were in. So there was not kind of the awareness or cognizance of the either the 
the breadth and depth of the enemy's capabilities or the scope that this mission would end up entailing? Right, because the idea was that we were going to place where either police were already at or that we were ready to get police into immediately. Mm -hmm. I think part of the problem was, um, and we, we worked for an army command, we weren't really under ISAF, International Security Force Afghanistan. We were under this training contingent that was headed by a, a two-star, but they had no forces and they didn't have logistics. It was just kind of a command element where they contracted all the logistics through the Afghan government mm-hmm. and then ran this training. And we were really their only maneuver force that was assigned to them, you know, actual troops. They had, they had different training teams, but primarily they looked over the logistics and some Kazavak or the Afghan police. So for folks who are listening to this, 2-7, the battalion, their AO, their uh, area of operations was about, and correct me if I'm wrong, but about 28,000 square miles. Is that correct? Yeah, same size as Vermont. Okay. And about how much of that was Fox Company, your company, responsible for? We had two positions. We had one in Lusakela. So one of my platoons was over there with with my company XO, but they were with a, a British, they were under a British battalion. Uh, they called them battle groups. Mm-hmm. So it was the five Scots battle group out of Bob Robinson and then the district center there. And so the idea was that the British were going to conduct their operations. You know, they, they were a battle space owner and we were nested inside of them to run the, the training of the police. And, and there, Muscala had a, you know, a, a robust police force, established police force that was had a police chief and were actively doing operations against the Taliban. Where okay. I went with my other two platoons was a place called Nauzad. There's a, a district called Nauzad. So it's, you know, think of a, a county. And then there's Nauzad proper, the, the town. And I, and I talked to the commander of, of the, the police training effort. I, I asked him, you know, why are we why are we here? Because there weren't any police. And, and this was midway through the deployment. But he said this, this was someplace that the Afghan government, somebody high in the Afghan government determined was an important place to establish governance. So we went there with the, the plan to establish or to set conditions to allow police to come up there. And up there already was a, uh, a mechanized company of Estonian armed, armed forces their soldiers. And uh, then they had a bunch of British enablers because we were in a British battle space. They were Mm -hmm. the battle space owner, but our mission, the, the, the police training mission nested underneath them. And it was convoluted too, because the, the golf company that was further out West, they were under the Italians or the Spanish. Okay. Um, so we had our space that we operated in, but we were in somebody else's space. And then, so we had to coordinate, but it wasn't just one unit that we coordinated with. It was multiple. I mean, that was more for the battalion. The individual companies coordinated with whoever they were, whoever space they were in, so to speak, because Echo Company was under a different battle group as well in Sangin. So it, it was uh, a little muddled. You know, if you talk about a wire diagram of who owns what battle space and who reports to who and who do you coordinate with sure. to conduct different things? And and then on top of that, we had very different rules of engagement. Um, ours were, I, I won't use 
liberal is not the right term, but uh, more permissive, I guess. You know, the, the example that I was given by the British was if there was somebody with an RPG and you saw them and they dropped that, then you couldn't shoot them, according to the British ROE. That's what the British told me. I can't tell you if that was the official position. Ours mm-hmm. was not that way. If, we were, if you were identified as somebody that was a threat and not just that in that immediate second a threat, then we could engage. So, Ross, I know it's been a while since you retired, but I'm sure you could still quote us word for word the mission of a Marine Corps Infantry Battalion. Locate, close with, destroy by fire maneuver or repel the enemy's assault by fire in close combat. And so you go out there, one of your primary missions is to train, but you end up actually engaged yourselves, obviously, in a lot of combat directly. I imagine there's a lot of events that I'm sure are worth sharing, but what's maybe one or two milestone events that stand out to you from that 2008 deployment? Sure. And and if I could say, it wasn't just, you're right, we were there to train the police, and that was our, our the battalion's primary mission. Again, for, for us in Nowzad, our job was just to kind of set conditions for that, yeah. uh, to get the police up there. And it was a long way. I mean, it was, it was 56 kilometers as the crow flies from our battalion at Bastion. But there was no road. You're mm-hmm. driving in, you know, dry riverbeds, wadis. And so on the fastest, I think we ever made the drive was four hours. Our initial going out there was like 18 hours. It was so painful because mm-hmm. we had 60-some vehicles and taking all the material that we built our fob out there. So things that stick out. So the, the first thing we set upon was, one, there were literally IDs directly outside of our position. So we had to create some breathing space. So we, we set immediately to where we knew the enemy was at. And we spent a couple of weeks getting our feet wet and conducting patrols. We were finding IDs. And then we, we would just pick an objective where we had seen enemy activity, and we would go and clear that. Now, we couldn't hold anything because I didn't have enough people. Essentially, the the patrolling effort and the security of our own position took a platoon. So when we would conduct operations, kind of everybody out, you know. Sure. We completely exhausted the guys that were on guard because they would go on. It's a one squad standing guard, and they would go on, you know, four hours before the attack. And our attacks would usually last six to 14 hours. Mm-hmm. And then they would stay on after. So the guys that are just coming back can kind of, you know, get some food, refit, and, and then clean their weapons and assume posts and begin the rotation again. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we conducted about eight different operations. And the, the first one was one of those, we called it trench line. And we went uh, to a position where the Taliban were along a trench line. Um, we were very creative in our, in our picking of, <laughs> of naming operations. And, uh, uh, you know, that operation went fairly smoothly. We had a lot of success and, and kind of went beyond uh, a bonus objective, beyond what we had done. And we'd inflicted casualties on the enemy and, and kind of, you know, say there's a new sheriff in town. Mm-hmm. Because the Estonians and British weren't, weren't really allowed to operate that way. And the British and Estonians that were up there absolutely loved it because the Estonians and Brits could not plan any of that stuff, but they could, once we became engaged, they could become involved. Mm-hmm. So they would 
essentially be a, a reserve or even at times like a, a, a counter punch when we got to certain objectives and, you know, we would talk through the, the what ifs if we get contact here and, and this. And they had these really great APCs as well that were similar to our LAVs, only without a turret. Okay. And they were fantastic on the terrain up there rather than the up-armored Humvees that don't have the suspension or the power to really go across broken terrain like we were on. We weren't okay. operating on roads. So that, that operation went well. We had one Marine wounded, and, you know, there was a lot of high-fiving and everything afterwards. Um, mm-hmm. It was the following one, which I, I think with that excerpt, well, it was the excerpt from my wife's book. And it's the one that I kind of refer to that a day of days in our time there where we had all this success and, you know, no casualties. We inflicted casualties on the enemy. Well, this one was a, a big kind of punch in the nose day. Mm. And, uh, you know, it started out that way. I had sent one of the platoon commanders. Actually, it was his idea. He wanted to, he, you know, he thought if we could set up, push out into the town and he would sit uh, about eight hours before we left. And then once we started our, our very kind of larger movement, he was there with the squad to uh, to ambush anybody that was coming to address the, the main body. And so his name was Art, Art Carell. Mm-hmm. And as the, as uh, the other platoon commander, uh, Ryan Guthrie was uh, taking his Marines and we were clearing systematically through this. And I was moving back and forth between the squads. And that's when we got the radio call when uh, Clenard, I think my wife uses the name Lopez because I don't think that young man either authorized or, or led, but mm-hmm. they, they simultaneously stepped on IEDs um, and, and the call came in that they were getting mortar attack because the Taliban would use mortars as their primary charge. Okay. Uh, so there's two fins sitting around. So the Marines are like, you know, we just got hit with two mortar rounds. That was the initial call. And, you know, I, that didn't make sense that somebody would be that accurate with 82 millimeter mortars. Well, they weren't, it was yeah. IEDs. And there was another Marine that was also injured to shrapnel to his glasses Thank goodness he had those on. He still had quite a bit of stuff in his eyes, but if he didn't have his glasses on, he probably would have lost his sight. And that was from those those two blasts. We paused right then to get the the Kazovac out, and the helicopter came and got them out. That was quite a while, and it's you know, we we went firm and defended the compounds that we were in. You know, we got up on roofs and and uh, and then so we started moving again. And that episode happened where we're trying to link up Ryan Guthrie's platoon. And that's when the, the kid right in front of me, he was an assaultman and running right in front of me. And just, just like it said, it blew up. And yeah, you know, I remember vividly about that was as many IEDs as seemed to be around. There were two team leaders. As soon as the Marine was hit, the, the third Marine um, hit the IED they were just like running. Mm-hmm. So when those two team leaders went, when those two fire team leaders ran off after them, uh, I think it was Montoya and Dahl, you know, I'm screaming at them to stop, you know, to have, to have an engineer sweep up to those guys. 
but you know, they they see one of their guys down and they're just running. So we're the corpsmen. And I had yeah. to grab the younger guys that were standing right there to keep people from running recklessly to their guy to to aid them. And that's a hard thing to do mm-hmm. for young men that just want to, you know, help their buddy. So once we got up to Marks and, and you know, this is, uh, I was so impressed with our explosive ordnance disposal guys. Chris Strickland was our team leader and he was walking around and it's like he took it personal that guys stepped on IEDs Mm. kind of under his watch. I mean, there was nothing he could do about it. Right. Um, He had already found like three or four at that point. And he was walking around and he was sweeping, you know, it's a staff sergeant out there sweeping. Mm -hmm. And then he would like put his own body weight on if he got a hit on something, but he didn't think it was an IED, but he wasn't hundred percent sure. He would start stepping on it himself, like putting his weight on it to proof it. You know, and I I just say that because he's an absolutely incredible, brave human being. Yeah, putting it all on the line there. Yeah, you know, and and again, you could tell he was was a really, like, happy, jovial, make jokes all the time. And he, he just took it so personal that he wasn't finding these things and we were finding them the hard way. Mm-hmm. So at that point, when we hit that IED, I said, look, I, I'd rather be out in the open and face machine gun and mortars than deal with IEDs. So we stepped out. There was this large field in kind of the center of town. So we got out there. And as soon as we exposed ourselves, we started taking machine guns and mortars and, and then uh, all filed into this big compound. Got about, I say platoon, but it was more around 60 guys with all the enablers mm-hmm. that we had between engineers, EOD. We had a squad from one of the other platoons in there, and you know we had some ground sensor platoon guys and extra corpsmen. So it was about 60 guys, and we're in this big compound with no dwelling attached to it. It was almost like it was there. They set up compounds like that for farming mm-hmm. and gardening that I think they allow the female members of the family can go and not have to worry about what they're wearing or anything else. So they they're in kind of a secluded area and they can farm and do whatever free of prying eyes. Anyway, we're in this compound and it's, you know, mortars are, are hitting 50, 50 or 60 millimeter mortars. We, we never quite determined what they were, but basically being fired in the handheld, we can hear the shot out. We can hear the mortar being fired. It's that close. It's just like a, a few compounds over. And, and the blast is about the size of our 203 round, but two rounds landed on the wall, uh, you know, I'm, you're talking a, a foot wide and two rounds landed directly on that wall. Oh, wow. And, you know, it just took no tactical genius on my part. I looked up and there happened to be two, two Oh three gunners facing me across the compound. And I looked at them and I said, use me as a, like an aiming stick mm-hmm. and fire over. And they just, you know, they're skilled guys, but I'm telling them they can't see the target. And they fired, and, uh, you know, we were rewarded with the mortars stopping, and we could listen in on the Taliban's radios, and they were saying that guys were injured. So we got lucky and got some breathing space when those two guys hit the hit their mark. And then uh, from there, uh, the plan was is, is just to breach through walls, and we weren't going to run through alleys or anything else because that's where they were putting IEDs. We were just going to breach wall after wall after wall and just keep moving that way towards our objective, which, if I didn't explain, was a tree. The, the Taliban had been using this tree 
it was like a platform, like something you would see. Uh, it was more robust than a than a normal tree stand, like a, a bow hunter would use. Okay. It was almost like a, a, a platform tree house on this gigantic, probably 10 foot diameter tree. Mm-hmm. And uh, we could see, you could see the Taliban up there. And when we, it, you know, prior to this, we would see Taliban up there and see them use that as a forward observation, OP observation post type deal. And then, you know, we correlated, British really correlated that when you see something up there, you're probably going to end up receiving indirect fire into their forward operating base. Sure. So we set that as one of the objectives, knowing that the enemy would be around there, and they were. They did not uh, disappoint us that way. So we jumped out, and my radio operator, we were moved out of this compound, and he and I jumped in a ditch just outside of the compound, and we were going to take a rocket shot into one of the walls to kind of crumble it and get it started so that engineers could run up and uh, set like a ladder charge on it to blow a hole so we could start moving through compounds and then we were just going to keep using explosives to move from compound to compound so my radio operator and i run out there and they take the rocket shot and we get the engineers and start moving through at this point this is june in afghanistan it's about like 29 palms Mm -hmm. if people aren't familiar with the mojave desert in the eastern part of southern california it's the same almost terrain looks the same Uh, marines used to joke that we were just drugged and uh flown over the hill in 29 pounds. <laughs> uh, I'm assuming you're pushing probably over 100 degrees. Oh, easily. Yeah. I think yeah, that day it was, it wasn't quite 110, but it was in between, you know, in between there, call it 105. And, you know, there's one thing to have water and we all had a, we all kept one meal on us. But after a while, when you sweat that much, mm-hmm. you, you can, you can drink water. But if you don't have any electrolyte in there to hold that water in, right. it just goes right through you. You just sweat it out. Keep in mind, everything that I've just explained has lasted 10, 12 hours in there Wow! at this point. Yeah, it was very slow go. And we're in, you know, you're in your full gear. I'm sure most people understand. And we started having about three or four heat casualties. You know, we're, we're making stops. We're getting water resupply. You know, we just we're going through water so fast. Everybody's gone through, you know, we, everybody carried a canteen, everybody carried a camelback and then about three water bottles on them. And we were going through all of that and resupply. We'd go through that almost immediately. We got in kind of the last little position, the last little push. We were in, we were in a wall and we were exchanging hand grenades with the enemy. Mm. It, you know, it was one of those kind of surreal moments where you're shooting and, and you can see people you know, 30, 40 yards away, let's see the bad guys, 30, 40 yards away. And we got to this one point and, you know, I, I, I looked on the map, I looked where we were at and I realized that we still had another 300 yards to go. And I kind of looked left and looked right. And, you know, the guys are smoked. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got, so in one of the heat casualties, we brought up the first orange vehicle he drove right where I was laying in that ditch before we kind of started our push to breach through the walls of all these compounds. Um, and they hit an IED. I must've been, or my radio operator was probably closer. He was probably four or five feet from where that IED went off under the first orange vehicle. So we had that one. Then the Kazavak element got ambushed in a direct fire ambush. 
in there. So now I've got Kazovac vehicles that are down. We've got our Kazovac route is blocked. And on top of the heat casualties and me looking at where we had to go, you know, it was just one of those days where you were, where I overestimated and, and probably a little bit of hubris of what we, you know, what I thought we could accomplish. It was that point I said, yeah, I don't, I don't think we've got enough to do this. You know, I'd already pulled out whatever reserves that we had back in the fob of this attack and the Estonians were helping with the Kazovac and, and all that. But I, I stopped our attack and uh, we withdrew mm-hmm. and you know, you'd never, I don't think I've ever heard a story of a Marine company commander ever not reaching his objective, mm-hmm. right? Cause when we train, there's never a time when we don't reach our objective. Right. You know, it's, it, it always happens. So that sticks out of my mind one because of such a, what it felt like such a bloody nose. Mm-hmm. Um, like we got our asses kicked. Now I think we killed more guys. We didn't have anybody killed yet. We have three Marines that, you know, one double amputee and two single amputees plus a handful of other uh, routine casualties, broken foot, you know, concussions, lacerations, some small shrapnel wounds. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my company Gunny had a grade three concussion. Uh, so he was out of it for a little bit. You know, it was just a, it was a, a huge eye opener, particularly when you take the trench line operation to the trio P operation you know, very different results. There wasn't a lot of high-fiving going on after that one. And yeah. uh, it was kind of a, a realization of, you know, hey, this is, we've been here not even, well, maybe a little over a month, and uh, we got our nose bloodied pretty good today. And the fact that we didn't reach our objective, which, you know, I was really concerned about the psychological impact that that had on the Marines, in addition to the casualties that we had that day. And, you know, it didn't end right then. Two days later, we're doing a security patrol. I'm sitting in the fob and you hear a big boom and your stomach just sinks because you know that's not one of our explosions. You know, get a call on the radio. Hey, engineer, stepped on an IED. Uh, Lance Corporal Knowles, who lost his leg. And so we dispatched our quick reaction force, which is a squad with EOD. So we're getting a report, and Knowles comes back. We get that casualty evacuation done. Helicopter comes in, gets him on his way. And then you hear another gigantic boom. And we were fortunate where I was at. We had an incredible shock trauma platoon team, along with their doctor, soon-to-be Admiral Jim Hancock. Mm-hmm. Um, he was commander at the time. Okay. And, uh, you know, he was like the rock star of emergency battlefield medicine. Thank goodness. Um, he saved a lot of lives, saved limbs, staved off infection, you know, all those things that somebody of that kind of level, you know, commander in the Navy knows he was in the fob. He ran right over the, or right over to the, the operation center and I'm on the radio and, you know, there's Marines that are frantic on the radio mm-hmm. saying that Echo 6 Sierra, which was Staff Sergeant Strickland, our EOD team leader was KIA, you know, and Commander Hancock rips the radio out of my hand. He's like, you don't tell me when somebody's dead. You get them back to me, and I will determine that. You get them back here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it took some time for them to gather because there were a lot of other casualties. It was a 25-pound homemade explosive ammonium nitrate aluminum pressure plate and pressure release. So what had happened was Strickland was 
found the IED and he was kind of over it and there was a rock on top of the IED. And what had happened was they made it in such a way that that, that rock was awake. And if you knock the rock over, mm-hmm. the IED would go off. It was made for a vehicle. It was in the middle of a road on a route that we had been when we had done that first attack. So it was a massive IED. When the Marines returned, bringing Staff Sergeant Strickland back, they got out of the vehicle and one Marine is holding in one hand a body bag. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that was, that was there was the lower part of one of his legs. That was the only part we were, you know, that you could tell that we recovered. And, uh, and so we had a mass casualty drill as well because there were a lot of Marines that took shrapnel. The whole EOD team was down. And that's, you know, there's another psychological blow because if the experts are getting blown up, right? what does that mean for the rest of us? Mm-hmm. And uh, it was very unsettling. And the Marines were having a hard time, um, rightly so. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can't, you know, that's two days, four amputees, and one KIA and a very, you know, not that anyone's more important, but the critical part of Dasar Strickland's job mm-hmm. um, really kept a lot of other Marines alive. And uh, now we've lost him. In addition to one of the other EOD techs had to be sent. So we had one and they really can't operate like that. And that Marine, that one lone EOD guy that was still okay, you know, he was pretty shaken up. He just lost one of his very good friends that he's known for a long time uh, who was, you know, disintegrated, essentially. So we loaded up uh, and we went back out because we didn't get all of Staff Sergeant Strickland. We loaded up. It was a couple hours by the time we went back, and it was like a volunteer. It was mostly leadership that went back out to recover the rest of them. And, you know, we found, you know, I don't, I don't know another way to say this, but we found parts of him everywhere in, in conjunction with the blast. And then we found another part of him separate and it didn't make sense from where the blast was at and luckily the one EOD tech that we still had was smart enough to kind of check around it and what had happened was or what we deduced is there was an IED under this so the enemy had come back after we had withdrawn those casualties and placed another IED under part of Staff Sergeant Strickland Mm -hmm. and fortunately we found that one didn't have any more casualties after that but that's when you know the the reality of what we were doing really set in. And, you know, there's this romantic, I believe people have this romantic idea of combat, you know, almost like a, out of a Hemingway novel or something. Yeah. And this is when it became, it wasn't, it wasn't romantic. It wasn't sexy. It was just grueling, laborious work that every step you took, you know, am I going to lose my foot? Am I going to get my balls blown off? Mm-hmm. Am I going to die like Staff Sergeant Strickland did, you know, where you have to send a recovery team out to find parts of me? And again, another, you know, the kind of psychological aspect of war that you, you can't really train for. You don't really know. And, uh, you know, I had, I had squad leaders approaching me saying, sir, we need to just stay in the fob and do patrols and, and not do anything else. And, you know, I, I understood at the time. And, and my heart went out to this young man, mm-hmm. but I, I, you know, I, I had to pull him aside and say, look, man, 
it's not going to be, we wouldn't be any safer if we didn't go outside. We would be in more danger. And then at some point, somebody else is going to have to come in and do this. Mm-hmm. We don't want somebody doing this for us, particularly after we've now learned valuable lessons to, you know, to be able to do this. Now you bring in somebody new that doesn't know what we know mm-hmm. and they have to learn it all over the hard way. That's tough. It was, it was incredibly tough. And, you know, but you know, in the end, like the young guys, they just figure it out and mm-hmm. they're, they're tough mm-hmm. and they suited up and went right back out and would do that. We had, you know, we had one or two guys that for lack of a better term, kind of quit. And that was hard, you know, because you, you develop a connection to them. Anybody, not just me, but anybody develops a connection to these guys. And, you know, they're kind of quitting. And, yeah. and we had to address things like that. But we went right back. Uh, a week later, we went back to that same objective. And just punched the Taliban right back in the nose. Destroyed that, blew up that tree, which I know sounds kind of funny. Mm-hmm. We're taking this out on a tree, but... It was symbolic. We had, you know, something tangible in front of us and it belonged to the enemy and the enemy used it. We took it away from him and in route, we had a pretty good fight to it as well, where we didn't have any casualties and some of our vehicles got pretty shot up, but took it back to the Taliban. And again, from a psychological standpoint, I think that was, uh, it was pretty important that we get right back at it. Use the same guys that were the main effort that took all those casualties on trio P one. And when, they went back for trio P2. They were right there fighting the bad guys. So it was, you know, it was therapeutic combat, I guess, to get back in there and kind of reassert yourself as the, the dominant ones on the battlefield. And, and they were. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had an operation after that one where we lost another Marine. That was uh, it was pretty tough as well. And the rest of the point went on. We still lost a lot of legs and, and uh you know, it's, it's hard for young men to, uh, or young women, but you know, we were all men, uh, to go through something like that and have that kind of fear over you and not understand why the British and Estonians aren't assuming, you know, what they felt was the same risk. And, and they did, you know, they assumed the risk, but they're, they're just, they had a different command structure mm-hmm. and what they could do was, was more limited, especially as operations went on, mm-hmm. we got more and more scrutiny from task force Hellman on these things in use of, in use of the British and I won't say use, we didn't use them in working with the British and and Estonian forces. Some of your other Marines talked a little bit about the day before and the day of uh, losing staff sergeant guest. And I know that you were there, you were present for that too. Could you talk a little bit to, what you guys were doing at the time and how your Marines did specifically, because I know that they were absolute lions in combat that day. Oh, yeah. So it was August 11th, and one of our patrols were out and got in a pretty good firefight with Taliban squad patrol. And we called in air, and the British British Harrier came down. And in a lower altitude than they normally do, and dropped a thousand pounder and it skipped. It didn't blow up. It didn't bury itself. It skipped. Mm. And so now we have this thousand pounds of ordnance sitting on the front step of the Taliban's door and we had to do something. Now, ideally we just would have dropped another bomb on it, but we didn't know exactly where it was at. We knew a rough area 
of where it was at. So that squad, we kept the squad out there to watch on it, and then we made a, a rotation. Uh, had the snipers go out, watch it, and then another squad go out and watch it in the in the general area of where they were at, just to make sure that somebody didn't try to drive a truck up, because no one's going to just come and you know, a couple guys aren't going to pick up a thousand pound bomb and walk away with it. Right. But we wanted to make sure that any vehicle activity was not there where they could, you know, hoist it up and and use it against us or use it against somebody in, in Sangin, that would be pretty valuable. Mm-hmm. In my 2004 deployment to Fallujah, um, we lost nine guys in one V-bid, in a V-bid attack, and they used a, an aircraft bomb in the vehicle to blow it up. So that was kind of very fresh in my mind when I thought about a bomb being out there. Mm-hmm. So we, uh, in that 12 hours, organized a, essentially an operation, the platoon size reinforced operation to uh, reduce that bomb. And you know, we, we treated it just like we would any other clearing operation or raid. We get out there and I've got the kid that, that saw it, that at least was pointed to me, that knew where the bomb was. And I say knew, knew where the bomb was. I'm saying that with air quotes on it. Okay. So we get out there and we're in a pretty good firefight now because the Taliban realizes probably what we're trying to do got engagement on the left, right, mortar rounds are starting to fall on us. I'm about 700 yards away with this Marine. He's laying in a ditch, like a little irrigation ditch right next to me, and we're behind a little pump house, maybe a 8 by 8 building. So I, I get down, I take a knee, and I'm trying to be as calm as possible. Just before I open my mouth to talk to him, Lieutenant Corral comes over and says, you know, Lance Corporal, or Corporal Nickel just got shot in the throat. And he rightly asked me, all right, what are we doing? Mm-hmm. Fox six, what are we, what's the plan here? Because right now we're just exchanging fire. So I don't even answer him. And I kneel down and I'm talking to this young man and I say, okay, tell me where the bomb's at. And he kind of just does this swath with his hand of it's out there. And I was <laughs> okay. like, no, no, where's the bomb at? And he's like, it's, it's out there. And I realized at that point, I never asked the question, does anybody actually know where the bomb is at? Mm. And uh, I Corral's in my, you know, in my headphones going, sir, what are we doing? What mm-hmm. are we doing? I didn't have an answer for him. So I just took off running uh, where, I thought, where I thought the bomb would be. <laughs> so I'm running, you know, and, and the sniper platoon sergeant is there, Staff Sergeant Solemn, uh, Lieutenant Guthrie who I'm sure were, because I didn't say, I didn't tell anybody I'm going or <laughs> anything. I just, I was running. I was, I'm doing, uh, I'm up, he sees me, I'm down, running through an open field while all this is going on. And fortunately, a couple guys followed. Staff Sergeant Solomon and Lieutenant Guthrie and the radio operator from Snipers. And this fire team were just running across, essentially police calling for a bomb. And uh, I can hear Gunny Guest, Staff Sergeant Guest then, He's now Master Sergeant Guest, but mm-hmm. he was, uh, I hear him get on the radio because I still have the radio in my ear as I'm running along. And, and he, I just hear this, who the fuck is that? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody goes, that's Fox 6. Uh, and he's like, oh, Roger. Uh, <laughs> start, start, moving, uh, start moving vehicles up. And he starts doing this. <laughs> And then one of those surreal moments, like I'm running, you know, and there's fire going on and round skipping around. And, and I look over and my, uh, my vehicle has now pulled up beside me and is slowly 
it's about 15 meters away from me, paralleling mm-hmm. me. And I look up, and the gunner, who is Staff Sergeant Bugle, looks at me and just does this, like, little nonchalant wave. <laughs> like, hey, sir, what's going on? You just kind of look it over, you're like, hey, how's it going? <laughs> and, uh, and then... Again, not thinking about anything, Staff Sergeant Bugle's in a vehicle, and he's about, you know, 12 feet tall off the ground. Mm-hmm. And as I start to see the bomb, he gets on the radio and goes, oh, I can see the bomb. I'm like, <laughs> why didn't I think of it? Like, get in an armored vehicle, drive up a little bit, use the elevation of that vehicle, and mm-hmm. be able to spot the bomb. But no, I didn't think about that. <laughs> and then, uh, so then the four of us are sitting there, uh, you can see the enemy, and they would use, they would cut holes in the wall. They called them mouse holes. And they would stick their weapons to them. It was incredibly inaccurate fire, but they would do it at full automatic. They usually operated in teams of three. They would have an RPG gunner, uh, a team leader that had a, an AK-47, and then one guy that had a PKM, an RPK medium or light machine gun. And they would stick them through, and they would just pull the trigger. Mm-hmm. Um, and... So we can see them in there. So the four of us, we're looking at the ones in front, the mouse holes in front of us, just at the, when I say you're at the rapid, I don't mean like pulling the trigger as fast as you can, but like the rifle range rapid. And we would just suppress those holes until an EOD then drove up. (laughs) Again, another surreal moment. They're low crawling up to this bomb and rounds are skipping all around them, which is right next to the bomb. Mm. And we're all 50 meters from this bomb. And it's almost like they're using the bomb as cover. <laughs> now, I don't know if a round could set the bomb off. I don't know that much about it. But mm-hmm. I imagined that it's just going to take one round, and I'm going to lose the whole EOD team, one of my platoon commanders, the cyber platoon sergeant, mm-hmm. my dumbass, and then the Marines that are immediately in that vicinity when right. we should have all just been in vehicles. But we were beyond that point now, and EOD creeps up and places explosives on this bomb, sets a time fuse on it, and we load up, and the little makeshift fire team that I was a part of, we just bounded back at that point. I think Taliban had either ran out of ammo or we'd gotten a few of them, and they were moving their casualties. Maybe they were just so impressed that you just, it, it puzzled them. They weren't sure what to do. I, well, that, or they were depressed. Uh, they were so depressed because they couldn't hit us right right in front of them like look at these dummies how can we not shoot them so So i'm really tempted to ask you what was going through your mind but i think you've already said two or three times you don't know what you were thinking yeah yeah it was i will tell you it was fear Mm. and not the fear of like personal injury it was Mm. literally the fear that i did not have an answer Mm. for my platoon commander and i didn't and that I didn't ask a simple question. Hey, does anybody actually know where the bomb's at? So it was fear that I had just screwed everything up mm. and that I had just let down all my Marines. Wow. That was the fear. It, it really, you know, it, it wasn't even a, a, a it, it's not bravery. It's not any of that. It was absolute shame and fear that motivated me forward. And, and those Marines that went along well, no, that was actually bravery on their part. Mine didn't. Mine was just fear that yeah. I had failed everybody, and Nichols is shot in the neck, 
and may not live. Fortunately, mm-hmm. again, he got to Han- Commander Hancock in minutes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were able to get him on a helo and he's still kicking. But then the next day, we actually had a, a planned operation um, that we were going to stick to. And it was the same platoon. It was Gunny Guest, uh, or excuse me, Staff Sergeant Guest and mm-hmm. Lieutenant Carell's platoon that were the main effort for this one. And this was another one of Lieutenant Carell's plans. And I was going her along just to kind of facilitate communication. And then if we needed to echelon anybody into the fight, which we usually needed to do, then I was just going to take care of that. But this was his operation that he had planned. It was a solid plan. And it was so, it went out really well for what we inflicted on the Taliban. Unfortunately, we suffered some casualties. And one of those was going to guess. I was, you know, we were just a few, probably 40 meters from, from where his vehicle, he was all over the battlefield as he always was. And he just, he'd show up and fix a Mark 19 on one part of the battlefield. Then he'd get over and resupply another one. And then he'd get over and wow. conduct a, an assault with some of his Marines. And then he would, all right, you, you guys are good here. I'm going to go take care of this casualty. And he would mm. just move all around the battlefield. He showed up next to me. And he had a mortar. He had a 60-millimeter mortar. And no mortarmen. There weren't any mortarmen except me. I was in prior enlisted, and I was a mortarman. Mm-hmm. And so he shows up next to me because the platoon commander had been requesting it. So he shows up, and I was like, hey, Sassar, what are you doing? He's like, somebody needed a mortar, so I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so he starts looking around for somebody to help him, mm-hmm. and... You know, I'm I'm on the radio and I'm listening to everything that Carell's doing. He's got the fight well in hand. And so I become a mortarman mm-hmm. and start prepping the rounds for uh, Gunny Guest and dropping the round in the tube. And he would fire them out. It was on, we were on handheld mode of the mortar. And uh, we fired off about six rounds. That's what allowed Carell to move to his next position. At least that's what was communicated. And then Gunny Guest put the mortar back in the vehicle and he went off to go do something else. I think he wow. went off to go grab another Mark 19 from the FOB, which was less than a click away. But when he was on his way, they rolled over a big IED, another vehicle, you know, uh, one that was intended for a vehicle. Mm-hmm. And it blew him out of the door. The door opened, fortunately, and shot him out. And on his way out, he hit the door with his leg. It, it did like, uh, you know, you think about the fracture when you saw Joe Theismann's leg break. Right. It was like that, but it was at a steamer. Mm. Uh, like his, his, the bottom of his foot was sitting right next to his head. And again, you talk about psychological blows. Yeah. Um, you know, because he was such a, not just of the, his platoon, but of the company. He was kind of the heart and soul of the company. And, uh, and we lost him. But fortunately, we had Staff Sergeant Bugle, who uh, himself, that day, in the same position, we, one of our MRAPs took an RPG right to the turret. Fortunately, the gunner lived. And miraculously, the gunner lived. I mean, he was badly wounded. Mm-hmm. But Bugle got up, fixed the 50 cal, and two Marines that were in the vehicle were knocked out when that, when that RPG hit the vehicle just from the overpressure. Mm-hmm. Bugle got those guys up, 
he he himself got back in the 50 cal and got that gun back in the fight because he was he was kind of my security guy he would come along with me on these operations but he he stepped into third platoon's platoon sergeant role and it's you know didn't skip a beat mm-hmm. from where staff sergeant guest had him but bugle was more the serious guy guest was a uh, real gregarious everybody knew and loved still love him yeah yeah, that was uh, that was that was quite a day, you know. I always and this is not neither here nor there for a company commander to talk about myself, but on those two days, I carried six magazines on me every time we went out, and mm-hmm. I used all my magazines on both those days. I didn't run completely dry; I still had you know fifteen twenty rounds, but you know that's not a good thing when the company commander is using almost all his magazines things aren't aren't going well particularly that the day we went after the bombs that was my own fault was there a point soon after where you looked back at that and thought what the snot was i doing no i mean there were those points immediately where i wish i would have made a a better decision about things but not no i don't think i ever thought what the heck am i doing i just wish i would have made better decisions in the planning process that okay. probably would have alleviated a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I, I think too, when you see kind of, when you see high level medals going, you know, medal of honor and Navy cross and not in every occasion, but usually things have gone horribly, horribly wrong in those situations. And, and it's the individual or a group of individuals that, that kind of save the day. Mm-hmm. I always, attempted and i think most of the time we had it where we had the combat power to deal with whatever when something didn't go right mm-hmm. it had nothing to do with my planning ability it was just you know what you'd been taught and what i had been taught and everything that had prepared for me for that particular deployment uh, all the mentorship and leadership and i don't mean just the leadership from above i mean my leadership from below Sometimes they were they were running the fight. Yeah. The guest, the Corel, the Guthrie. Sometimes it was a squad leader, you know, that was dictating what the company was doing based on using their own initiative and bravery and everything else that um, that they did. And I do think that's something that I learned that was important as a company commander was hey, sometimes you gotta follow those guys and exploit their success. Mm, and it, right. it's not anything because you're Rommel, because you're not, and it's that they've done exceptional things that you can help them exploit that success 